Welcome, everyone. Just a quick note that today's episode is a rerun as we take a few personal days off to attend some doctor's appointments and things like that. Now, I didn't make an MLK episode in January this year, so I thought I would pull this episode, one of my favorites from last year, featuring a lot of the details of Martin Luther King Jr. you won't hear about on TV or from other mainstream outlets. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall hear just a few of the details of Martin Luther King Jr. that we're not taught in school, from his opposition to the Vietnam War, to his support of redistribution of wealth through democratic socialism, or by any other means as long as the result was a more equal economic society, and how it was necessary for America to forget all of these details in order to make him the hero we see him as today. Either that, or the sanitized version of King was made into a hero with the intention of burying those more subversive ideas. Our clips today come from Newsbeat, Intercepted, Counterspin, Start Making Sense, and Making Contact. I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has at many points turned into a nightmare. Roger C. Williams, pastor, First Baptist Church. As the pastor of a Baptist church, I'm often pressed into service by local officials to participate in a day of remembrance for the late Dr. King. Invariably, the day's events invoke the most famous of his words. It seems the entire legacy of this man has been distilled into these four words, packaged and spoon-fed to the public. But this was merely a moment in time in an evolution of thought. It in no way embodies the complexities of the man or the movements he inspired. And we're doing a disservice to our children by striking a single note over and over again, expecting them to hear the entire symphony. If we want to truly honor the legacy and works of Dr. King, we must certainly acknowledge the March on Washington as a high point in the civil rights movement as it precipitated the passage of some important reforms in our nation. Increasingly, however, Dr. King became disillusioned with the political process and what he saw as an organized effort to marginalize people of color around the world and to pit the working class against itself by provoking racial discord. The former is illustrated by his vehement and unpopular opposition to the Vietnam War. The latter can be explained by what is known as the Southern Strategy. This was merely a moment in time in an evolution of thought. Essentially, by the end of his life, Dr. King was speaking more often about the tendencies of America to combat communism, but only aggressively so, against nations of brown people. The government responded in kind by branding him a communist, extensively surveilling him and attempting to blackmail him. He was also vocal about economic issues and what he believed to be an assault on poor people, instead of poverty itself and a subversive campaign to turn members of the white working class population against black workers, particularly in the South. In fact, 
the last movement he was to carry forth was called the Poor People's Campaign. This, he believed, would truly be his legacy. More than likely, it was this that got him killed. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to fall, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Now, this is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. True legacy. The movement, the memory, epitome of truth, the power, they couldn't let him be. Statues now, before it was the effigy, the end of Jim Crow, enter the SCLC. Nonviolent, but nothing close to timid. Master of the boycott, protest, and sit-ins. A noble man who even won the Peace Prize. Yet they threw him in a cell almost 30 times. Three letters and you know who it is. They try to boil him down in just four words. Too simplistic, they hunted him down, labeled him a communist. Now they applaud. After they whitewashed it, a champion, a man for all people. Uncle Sam ain't want him to branch out. He reached too far and he pushed too hard. A red alert, so they did what empires do and killed the messenger. Today, Martin Luther King has a monument in his honor in Washington D.C. There's a national holiday named for him, and King's story, a very watered down, whitewashed version of his life, is taught in schools across this country. It's taught in schools around the world. But what is almost never discussed about Martin Luther King Jr. was the truly radical nature of his politics and how he was completely rejected, scorned, and ridiculed by the news media, uh, eventually by the broader civil rights movement, and, and also toward the end of his life by large swaths of the black population in the United States. Dr. King's speeches for many, many years contained revolutionary anti-imperialist ideas and visions, but those are, are never quoted. King described his own economic outlook as being rooted in democratic socialism. 50 years ago this week, on April 4th, 1967, Martin Luther King delivered a very historic speech at New York City's Riverside Church. It was titled, Beyond Vietnam. If we continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. If we do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately, the world will be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horrible, clumsy, and deadly game we have decided to play. We're now going to discuss this speech and the, the part of King's legacy that never seems to make it into the 
cartoonish, almost cartoonish version of his life that's been manipulated and used by Republicans and Democrats for their own agenda. Even the FBI, which many people believe was directly involved with King's assassination, the FBI tweeted this week, supposedly in honor of King's life, work, and commitment to justice. Now, given the fact that the FBI systematically harassed and threatened Martin Luther King while he was alive, and that campaign was led by J. Edgar Hoover, for whom the FBI building is named, I I find that tweet sickening. Joining me now to discuss the legacy of Martin Luther King in that last year of his life is Tavis Smiley. He is the host of a PBS show that bears his name. Tavis is doing an entire week of special programming on his show uh, on PBS. I encourage everyone to check it out. He is dissecting various aspects of King's Beyond Vietnam speech. And in addition to hosting his television and radio show, Tavis is also the co-author of, of a very, very important book on the last year of Dr. King's life. It's called Death of a King, The Real Story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Final Year. Tavis Smiley, welcome to Intercepted. Jeremy, an honor to be on. Thanks, my friend. Tavis, most people, uh, when when Dr. King is celebrated in society or talked about, almost exclusively reference the I Have a Dream speech. Can you lay out how Dr. King came to give the Beyond Vietnam speech and the significance? First of all, Jeremy, it is the most controversial, the most unheralded, and I think the most powerful speech that Dr. King ever made. And it's worth being studied by by anyone um, who really wants to understand who Dr. King really was. I think it's true for all of us, Jeremy, that we get to know who we are in the dark, desolate hours of our lives. And if you don't know Dr. King in this last year, from April 4, 67 to April 4, 68, then you don't see him in the dark, desolate hours to really come to appreciate who he was. And so to your question, in 63, he's given the I Have a Dream speech. And I think people think King only gave one speech in his whole life, Jeremy, and they act like the speech only had one line in it. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. That's all we seem to know from that one speech. Even that speech had some more subversive truths in it that America wasn't really ready to handle. But it's nothing compared to this Beyond Vietnam speech. So here's the, here's the quick answer to your question. In 63, King is talking about integration. By the time he gets to the Beyond Vietnam speech, he is saying publicly that he fears that for all the work he and others have done to fight for integration, these are his words, he fears that we, that, that we have integrated into a burning house. By the time he gets to this speech, he's preparing to preach a sermon entitled, Why America May Go to Hell. In so many ways, King grows from 1963 to 1967, but this is the speech Vincent Harding, the late, great Vincent Harding, who helped craft the speech, said he believes, Jeremy, that this speech is the speech that put the target on Dr. King's back. And so literally, he gives this speech coming out against the war in Vietnam in uh, in New York City at the Riverside Church, April 467. He opens the speech, as you well know, by saying, I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. He goes on to say that sometimes silence is betrayal. And then he refers to his task that evening to really just upbraid America. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia 
which they had not found in southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. And all hell broke loose the next year, and that bullet chased him for a full year, and it caught him a year to the day, almost to the very hour that he gave the speech, and it kills him April 4, 1968. Back in the 1990s, fair founder Jeff Cohen and Norman Solomon wrote a column, The Martin Luther King You Don't See on TV. It noted how the timeline in media's story seems to jump from 1965, marching for voting rights in Selma, to King's assassination in Memphis in 1968, because national news media have never really come to terms with what Martin Luther King Jr. stood for during his final years, when he challenged the country's fundamental economic and international priorities, when he opposed the war in Vietnam, when he called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. As Joseph Torres of the group Free Press wrote just recently, sanitizing King's legacy is a deliberate act. While that sanitizing is reflected not just in what media don't talk about when they talk about King, but also in how they present those things they do discuss. Any holiday roundup, for example, will include footage from the 1963 I Have a Dream speech. The narrative there, put simply, is of a fractious country brought together by the sheer force of King's moral eloquence, universally recognized and appreciated. It wasn't really much like that at all, as Counterspin discussed with Gary Young in the summer of 2013, the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Gary Young is New York correspondent for The Guardian and author of the book, The Speech, the story behind Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. We asked him about the preeminent misrememberings or misunderstandings of King's words that day. I think the first one is that Significant powers, the main powers in the country, did not want the march to take place. And without the march, there wouldn't have been a speech. Kennedy didn't want it to take place. Most Americans thought that the march was a bad idea. Uh, And an overwhelming majority of white Americans thought that the country was moving too quickly towards civil rights. There is this sense that there was a group of bad guys in the South, bad white people, (laughs) with sticks and dogs, and that everybody else was basically on board. And that's just not the way it happened. So there's that. That everybody knew as soon as that speech was delivered that it was a speech for the ages and that um, it struck a chord immediately. I mean, it was a great speech. I haven't heard anybody who was there say it wasn't a great speech. Kennedy greeted King saying, I have a dream, and was looking at the, you know, looking at the march on a TV in the Oval Office and said, damn, that man can speak. It moved people. It certainly moved people. But you ask anybody who knew King well, 
Anybody who's in the movement, did you think we'd be speaking about this speech 50 years later? They all say no. While the speech was lauded immediately by you know, New York Times and others, it actually kind of fell from public view. Very few people quoted it. It wasn't quoted in the congressional records barely at all, even though there was a Voting Rights Act and a Civil Rights Act. And King became more unpopular in the years following the speech. He moved on to poverty and the Vietnam War, and these things got him in an awful lot of trouble, and he died an isolated figure. It was only after he'd been assassinated that the dream was resurrected, and over the years became polished and gleaned to become a national icon. So it's not as though history goes through the collection of speeches that are available and says, this one is the best one, objectively. I like his diction, I like his metaphors, and so on. It's, America has chosen to remember this speech because it does something very particular for America in this moment. You make a point of the fact that, you know, our listeners may know that how media ignore King's anti-war stance and his emphasis on economic restructuring. I remember uh, David Gergen, the pundit, expressing confusion and dismay that uh, Hillary Clinton chose to use a remembrance of King as a time to mention poverty. He thought it was just mm. out of place. But you make the point that even his views on racism have been misunderstood, and it's just this fact of segregation, which King was acknowledging, uh, you know, the end to, but he didn't believe that segregation and racism were the same thing and that racism ended with segregation. Well, right. This is the very useful illusion of the conservatives and the right, is to use segregation as a foil for racism and to say that racism is now finished because segregation is finished. At the march on that day, A. Philip Randolph said, of course we want equality, but uh, gaining entry to these establishments will do us little good if we do not have the money to buy anything there. And so the end of segregation, which was a major achievement which should not be undermined or undersold, it meant the end of the most explicit form of racism that could exist. But it didn't mean the end of racism, and King never, ever thought it did. King's legacy has been instrumentalized toward a number of ends. Pundits have argued that he would have supported wars in regions around the world. But the most popular conservative appropriation might be that because he said people should be judged by the content of their character, King would have opposed affirmative action. Despite the evident weakness of the idea that the person who called for a radical redistribution of political and economic power was opposed to affirmative action, it's been tossed out for years by the likes of David Horowitz and Charles Krauthammer as proof that King was in fact a conservative. An early observer of the phenomenon, Paul Rockwell, noted that when Louisiana Governor Mike Foster signed an executive order abolishing affirmative action, he presented that as the fulfillment of King's dream. Oh, you say, but that was way back in 1995. But nope, it's 2017, and the Washington Post editorial headline reads, Martin Luther King Jr. was a true conservative. And that's because, quote, in his way, Dr. King did a lot to preserve, protect, and defend the best of our principles and values. 
just as Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was despised by many conservatives of his day, helped keep American society from succumbing to the radical ideologies that brought death and devastation to much of Europe and Asia, Dr. King worked to turn back extremism, violence, and racial nationalism at the height of the civil rights movement and to keep the cause of essential and long overdue change in the American mainstream, close quote. As fair analyst Adam Johnson noted, the Post's false dichotomy in which King, or their version of him, represents the good left, unmoved by racial nationalism and Marxist ideology, is just the same tired take, erasing the King that said in 1961, quote, call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children, close quote. Larry Ham, Chairman, People's Organization for Progress. You know, like the young people, they be like, uh, I don't like Dr. King, I like Malcolm X, because they think Malcolm X is more militant than Dr. King. But if you read what Dr. King was saying in 1967, 1968, it's almost indistinguishable from some of the things, many of the things that Malcolm X was saying when he was assassinated in 1965. He was assassinated in 65. Both of them, by the way, were 39 years old when they were assassinated. Dr. King and Malcolm X. They, neither of them lived to be 40 years old. But I would really urge people to familiarize themselves as we get close to the King holiday. Dr. King says in the fifth book he wrote, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. I think it's in the chapter called The World House. He says that he wanted to take a million people to Washington, D.C. That's what he said. He said a million. He said, I want to take the Negroes from the ghettos, the Indians from the reservation, the poor whites from Appalachia, the Latinos from the barrios, and they were going to go to D.C. and engage in massive civil disobedience until Congress passed an economic bill of rights for everybody. I have a dream. Ultimately, I think what scared the establishment was Dr. King connecting the dots that economic mobility equated to political power. After the March on Washington, he began to transcend issues of racism and social justice, which were boxes those in power allowed him to fill. Once he broke out of these boxes and began to attack the very underpinnings of the capitalist structure and the military-industrial complex, it was almost as though he broke the rules of engagement. We're coming to get our check. And so, over time, there seems to have been a deliberate effort to stuff Dr. King back into these more comfortable boxes and whitewash history. One of the first things you do when rewriting history is to find a convenient foil or anti-hero. Malcolm X, for example, is largely portrayed as the militant black activist who didn't see eye to eye with Dr. King's nonviolent movement. And so, as a nation, we celebrate King and approach Malcolm X with extreme caution. While there is an element of truth to this characterization, 
At certain periods, it's reductive in nature. The fact of the matter is that both men began to recognize a coordinated effort on behalf of our government to oppress poor and working class Americans and create a culture of fear and distrust along racial lines. The second important step to rewriting history is to narrow things down to slogans and epitaphs, something ephemeral that evokes emotion, yet can fit on a bumper sticker. I have a dream. A lifetime of agitation, heartbreak, and protest reduced to four simple words that neither inform or offend. The NEA, for example, offers national guidelines on how to teach children about the life and times of Dr. King. It's as though he finished that speech and simply disappeared from public life, only to be shot and killed after five years of silence. The lesson plans show our teachers how to speak to children about nonviolence and passivity and the importance of the marches and boycotts in Selma and Montgomery. They listen to sections of I Have a Dream, and that's basically it. They even have a link to the rap video from Common called A Dream, which is supposed to connect young people today through hip-hop. But even this video is the perfect example of whitewashing history because it's the title song and music video to a movie called Freedom Writers where Hillary Swank, the white savior teacher, finds herself assigned to an inner city class full of troubled ethnic teens. It's a typical, well-meaning Hollywood liberal portrayal of the white man, or woman in this case, who saves the day by inspiring kids to reach beyond their circumstances and make something of themselves. They are the very people, the very people telling the black man that he ought, to lift, he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. I think that Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X, I mean, when you listen to their speeches, it's like they're talking about today, you know? I mean, this is why you can listen. You hear Dr. King start to talk, and he's like, well, what is he talking about now, you know? We have a Dr. King holiday. We had to fight for that. We have, in every town, in Martin Luther King Street, there's a school. King's writings, particularly the writings in the last two years of his life, are particularly relevant. Like, why do we have a Dr. King holiday and none of the six books that Martin Luther King wrote are required reading in any public school? What's the sense of closing the school if the children, the young people, the students are not going to know what he stood for, what his principles were, what he was fighting about? People really should go to the, the speeches that Dr. King gave like 1967 and 1968. If you want to know where Dr. King's head was, read those speeches. Read A Time to Break the Silence, which was, people call it Why I Opposed the War in Vietnam, but the actual title of the speech is A Time to Break the Silence. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, 
which they had not found in southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watched them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. Like most important figures throughout history, there was so much more to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. than is portrayed in the media and in the classroom. He was a flawed man and a complicated figure who evolved over his lifetime made many sacrifices and compromises on the way to his many achievements. It's tempting, I suppose, to allow history to view him through a simplistic but noble lens and just leave it at that. After all, part of the prepackaged and sold legacy is that he was indeed a moral and transcendent figure who fought the good fight on the right side of history. But to truly honor him, I believe we need to be honest about his personal struggles and the times he chose to question the very movement he helped shape. Toward the very end of his life, in fact, just the night before he was killed, an increasingly paranoid and fragile king delivered one of the other most notable addresses in his life. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with you but I want you to know the night When he delivers that final line, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He turns abruptly and retreats from the stage. In retrospect, the moment is made even more powerful knowing these would be his final public words, as though he knew what was to come, maybe even when. He was assassinated the next day. In the end, Dr. King's legacy should be one that speaks to all people. The monolithic portrayal of him as a crusader for social and racial justice diminishes the more revolutionary aspect of his leadership. In many ways, we're only beginning to wrap our minds around the language he was using in the 60s. 
When he said, this country has socialism for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor, it may as well be Bernie Sanders out there campaigning. You see, the brilliance of Dr. King was his ability to see the entire picture, a spectrum of issues that were interwoven within a capitalist system designed to separate working people from economic power. That economic bill of rights Dr. King first talks about in the fourth book, Why We Can't Wait. In, in that book, he called it a bill of rights for the socially disadvantaged. But by 1968, he was just calling it an economic bill of rights. But you know, really, Dr. King was taking a leaf from the notebook of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Because many people don't know that Roosevelt was saying that the country needed an economic bill of rights. Before he died, I mean, there's a thread that just runs through our history that most of us are unaware of. I was unaware of it. As much as we would like to paint him as the patron saint of nonviolent action against institutional racism, Dr. King was, in reality, a radical and revolutionary voice cut down for challenging systemic oppression. Yeah, a true legacy. The movement, the memory, epitome of truth, the power, they couldn't let him be. Statues now before it was an effigy. The end of Jim Crow, enter the SCLC. Nonviolent, but nothing close to timid. Master of the boycott, protest, and sit-ins. A noble man who even won the Peace Prize. Hit the throw him in the cell almost 30 times. Three letters and you know who it is. They try to boil him down in just four words. Too simplistic. They hunted him down, labeled him a communist. Now they applaud after. After they whitewashed it, a champion, a man for all people. Uncle Sam ain't want him to branch out. He reached too far and he pushed too hard. A red alert, so they did what empires do and killed the messenger. You know, if you Google around and you say MLK intervention Syria, MLK bombing Iraq, you can find some prominent political figures that make these arguments. Well, King would have supported uh, going in to stop the killing in Syria. Well, King would have supported uh, a regime change uh, to get rid of, of Gaddafi. And the, the, the point you're making, which I think is so important to, to remind people of, is that King himself was facing down against very well-armed, very well-organized terrorist factions and did not call for the United States government to drop a bomb on the Ku Klux Klan. His response was, my body and my ideas, that's my weapon, and I use them nonviolently in between the state-sanctioned murder that we are facing and our own survival. Yeah, King was, was, was fond of saying that, um, that slogans are not solutions. Slogans are not solutions, and so you can try to deconstruct nonviolence 18 ways from Sunday, but King is the only one that had a winning record. Every conflict that he engaged in, where nonviolence was a strategy, he won. I mean, every conflict he was ever involved in, from Montgomery Bus Boycott, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, just run the list. His strategy of nonviolence worked. He never lost a battle except his own life. And even then, they killed his body, but they didn't kill his spirit. Here we are 50 years later still talking about the brother. So even that battle, he didn't lose. And so he would again say that slogans are not solutions. Let me let me put it this way. My friend Cornell West, who you referenced earlier, Jeremy, in this conversation, 
came up with a term some years ago that I'm still tickled by all these years later. And what you just described about people taking King's words and twisting them like a pretzel, Dr. King calls the Santa Clausification of Martin King. Only Cornel West could come up with that term, the Santa Clausification of Martin King. And his point simply is that the farther we get away from Martin's real-life, real-time existence, people want to take his words and twist them. They want to tame him. They want to defang him. They want to deodorize him. They don't want to deal with the subversive truth, I repeat, of what he was saying and about the power of nonviolence. Because you've studied this speech so deeply and on a scholarly level, what was the thrust of the argument that King was making for his uh, opposition to not only the Vietnam War, but also asserting that the United States government was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world at that time? He wanted to make the case of our involvement in this conflict, our involvement in other conflicts around the world. He didn't want to just say America is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world and not back up his point. So he referenced any number of conflicts that we didn't that we'd been engaged and involved with indeed around the world. So he made his case to back up that particular uh, assessment. But then he goes on, as you know, to advance this notion of what he called the triple threat facing our democracy. And he basically says to America, you, America, are simply going to lose your democracy if you don't get serious about the triple threat facing our nation. That triple threat, racism, poverty, and militarism. Racism, poverty, and militarism. And I dare say here we are 50 years later, still trying to wrestle with that subversive truth that King told 50 years ago uh, that still threatens to tear this democracy apart. Racism, poverty. And militarism. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the monument to King in D.C. and whether you believe that that monument would exist if the the depths of King's opposition to imperialism, his embrace of a sort of democratic socialist economic philosophy, if we really understood King beyond just, oh, he was the great leader that wanted uh, black children and white children to, to play together in peace— do you think that the real king would get a monument in Washington, D.C.? In a word, no. There'd be no monument. I'll go further than that. There'd be no monument. There'd be no federal holiday. His name would not appear on schools and streets and libraries and just about anything else. The absolute, the absolute answer is no. The unequivocal answer is no. The truth of the matter is, were Dr. King here uh, this week on the anniversary of this speech, and he, you know, volunteered to show up at a number of places in our society to kind of deconstruct this speech or kind of look back on it 50 years later. He wouldn't have an audience. I've often joked that around the King holiday that we celebrate every year, if Dr. King showed up backstage and said, uh, I'm Dr. King and I'm, I'm here, I'm back, and I'd like to go on the program in honor of me today, I, I figure I can get on my own program. Can I, can I get on the program to say a few words? Well, Dr. King, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about racism and poverty and militarism. I want to talk about how Barack Obama, who I certainly would have voted for, you know, had a drone program on steroids. I want to talk about how he increased the military-industrial complex. I want to talk about how he dropped more drones and killed more innocent women and children than George Bush, his predecessor, did. I want to talk about how poverty is threatening our very democracy, and now it's a matter of national security. I want to talk about how racism is still the most intractable issue in this country. If Martin showed up and wanted to give that kind of critique, that Negro couldn't get on stage at his own celebration. 
what was the response of of the let's call it the mainstream media? Mm. I've said many times that there, there there was no Fox News around, you know, fifty years ago. But had they been around, we can only imagine the field day they would have had, just yeah. completely ripping him to shreds. I mean, it'd been twenty four seven wall to wall coverage on Fox News, eating him up. Um, so Fox News wasn't around, but they didn't need Fox News then because the liberal media did the Fox News job on Dr. King. So when you read, and I'm so glad you asked this, when you read what, and this, we have it in the book, when you read what the New York Times said about him, it is embarrassing. Yeah. When you read what mm -hmm. the Washington Post said about this speech the next day, it's humiliating. When you read what Time Magazine said that week, it, it'll make you cry. I mean, it's just hard to imagine that the liberal media went after Dr. King the way they did. Now, again, you fast forward all these years later with the streets and the schools and the holidays that bear his name and the holiday and the monument in Washington and all of that. It's hard to juxtapose the fact that that the media had just basically turned on him in the last year of his life. They wouldn't run his op-eds. The New York publishers would not publish the book that he wanted to publish. So he couldn't get an op-ed. They wouldn't publish his book. <clears throat> he couldn't get a paid speech. He was not welcome in black churches. Black politicians didn't want to be photographed or seen with him. The NAACP turned on him. The Urban League turned on him. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. turned on him. Thurgood Marshall turned on him. Ralph Bunch turned on him. The bourgeois elite turned on him because they were upset that Martin was going to damage the relationship that black folk had with Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, to many minds, had been the best pres the best friend that Negroes had had in the White House since who? Since Lincoln had freed the <laughs> slaves. So they're like, Negro, you're going to mess it up for all of us mm -hmm. by getting into it with Lyndon Johnson. So the bourgeois elite Negroes were mad at him for angering Johnson and messing up that relationship. And the everyday black people, certainly the younger black people, um, were interested in Stokely. And black power, H. Rap Brown, Huey P. Newton, the Black Panthers. So Martin, in his own community, didn't have a constituency with the bourgeois Negroes or the everyday Negro. So in the last year of his life, again, we come back to pure hell, pure hate. He really has no constituency. Yeah, I made some uh, notes from your book, Death of a King, of, of uh, what the mainstream media said about mm -hmm. King's speech at Riverside Drive. I'm sure you remember these. The New York Times said, called it disastrous, wasteful, and self-defeating. Mm. The Washington Post called it a grave injury to his natural allies and even graver to himself. Mm. And Life magazine said, comes close to betraying the cause. So this was pretty much, as you say, the consensus across the board. Uh, what was his response? The most beautiful thing about this text and the research for this text is that while Martin was depressed at times in the last year, was despondent at times in the last year, sometimes had to cry himself to sleep. Um, he knew there was a bullet out there with his name on it. He's catching hell and hate from everybody inside of his camp. He's. Uh, being he has to deal with his own board voting to condemn him for coming out against the war. His treasurer, James Harrison, he doesn't know this at the time, of course, but James Harrison, his treasurer, is on the FBI payroll. His photographer, Ernest Withers, is on the FBI payroll. So he's being sold out from the inside, catching hell and hate from the outside. The media is against him. Uh, the White House is against him. White America is against him. Black America is against him. He knows there's a bullet out there with his name on it. And every day he's trying to get up to your question 
and find the courage, the conviction, the commitment, the character to keep trying to tell the truth as he knew it. How does he respond to your question? He has to pull and pray himself through the depression, the despondency, and the mania that he was feeling because of the way that everybody was coming at him. There's a story in the book, as you know. Um, let me just back up. In the last year of his life, Martin is hospitalized a number of times. The official reason for his hospitalization was always exhaustion. And to be sure, he's running from pillar to post. You've seen this hectic schedule he had the last year of his life trying to organize the Poor People's Campaign. He's on the move all the time. So to be sure, he's exhausted. But he also has a sense of mania. So again, I'm back to your question. How does Martin deal with it? He deals with it by pulling and praying and pushing and powering himself through, sometimes through tears, though. One day he's trying to get out of his out of his room. He's dressed fully clothed, as I said. Gets to the door. The depression hits him. He can't even get out the door. He gets back in the bed, pulls the covers over his head, fully dressed, cries himself to sleep. There's another night. His doctors tell him from being so exhausted that he needs to get uh, get away for a few days. He goes to Jamaica with some of his staff members uh, to get away. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, they come to check on Martin, and they go into the bedroom, and they can't find him. Now, they're scared because he's got death threats every day. They know he's depressed. When Martin was a child, and you can read this in the book, of course, when he was a child at 12 years of age, he tried to commit suicide. I'll let you, I'll leave that hanging for a second. He tried to kill himself when he was 12. So this mania had followed him his whole life. So they were worried about Martin. Three o'clock in the morning, they can't find him in his room. They walk all around the room. They go to the hallway. They go to the lobby. They're searching everywhere. They can't find him. Has he killed himself? Has he been kidnapped? I mean, what's happened to him? They finally remember that the hotel suite he was staying in had a, a balcony that wrapped around the bed, around the room, rather. So they'd gone out to the, to the balcony and didn't see him. They forgot it went around to the other side. So they walk around to the this L-shaped balcony. They walk around to the other side, and there's Martin King at 3 o'clock in the morning with his pajamas on, and he's looking out at the ocean, and there's a huge rock out in the middle of the ocean. And he's staring at that rock, tears running down his face, 3 in the morning with his pajamas on, And he's singing over and over again an old gospel hymn. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The song, as you well know, is a song, uh, the lyric lyric of the song is basically saying, rock of ages, cleft for me. I I just want to hide myself in your bosom. I want to escape this and get away from this. Martin knows his time is coming to an end, and he just wants to hide in the bosom of his Savior. And they say, Martin, what's wrong? Why are you out here? And they can't console him. And and once they know that he's essentially okay, he's alive, they leave him to himself. They come back at 8 o'clock in the morning. Martin is still standing in the same spot with his pajamas on, singing that same song. So that's the long answer to your very short question. But he has to pull and push and pray and power himself through these moments of depression and despondency and hell and hate because he knows that he's telling the truth, even though it's too subversive for us to handle. Applause, he needs no further introduction. Mr. Bob Dylan. It was a hot day, 87 degrees at 
noon, and King is the 16th on a uh, agenda of 18. He's a 10th speaker. There's been the anthem, the invocation, the prayer. There have been a range of uh, a number of singers, including Mahalia Jackson, Peter, Paul and Mary, Bob Dylan. A range of people have sung. And he, he, uh, he takes to the podium uh, about 2.30. At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. And um, according to Clarence Jones, who uh, drafted much of the text, King keeps closer to this text than he would regularly keep. I am happy to join with you today. Um, those who wrote speeches for King said they were always King speeches basically but you would be in Clarence Jones's words like a very crude architect you would set up the four walls and then King like a beautiful interior designer would come and he would make it his own and King speaks very faithfully to uh, the main text five score years ago a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But then as, uh, and if you listen to the speech, um, and I would advise you to listen to it, it's the most popular, least well-known speech I've heard of. When I told my brother I was doing uh, this book, he said, I love that speech. It's such a great speech. You know, that thing about I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land, and I said, it's a great speech, but it's not that speech. And um, uh, he's winding up. He says, go back to Mississippi, go back to Louisiana, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us Behind him is sitting Mahalia Jackson, a very, very close and special friend. When King was on the road, he would often call Mahalia Jackson for what they termed gospel therapy. He would call her and he would ask her to sing to him down the phone to soothe his spirit when he was down. And so he knew her well. He knew her voice well. And she shouts, tell him about the dream, man. Tell him about the dream. She had heard him deliver the dream segment in June in Detroit. King continues. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. And then she shouts again, tell us about the dream, Martin. Tell us about the dream. I say to you today, my friend. And then, in the words of Clarence Jones, King puts his text to the left of the podium. And in his body language, changes from a lecturer to a preacher. And Jones turns to the person next to him and says, those people don't know him, but they're about to go to church. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. At which point, Wyatt T. Walker, the man who advised him not to do that, who's in the crowd, turns to the person next to him and says, oh, sh he's doing the dream. So um, that's how we got there. And what's interesting is that when you ask people who were there at the time and who knew King well, to a person, 
they will tell you that they did not, of all the speeches that he made, this was not particularly one that they thought we would be talking about in 50 years' time. It was a great speech that none of them, you know, deny that. But many of them have different speeches that they thought uh, were better. And either way, they said great speeches was what King did. And so I spend a fair amount of time in the book looking at why that is. And I want to kind of really suggest two things here. The first is that there is something for pretty much everybody in this speech. If you are an African-American, part of a community who's told that you are genetically stupid, that you're poor because you're stupid, that your stupidity is your responsibility, and that your uh, the the failings in your community have nothing to do with history and everything to do with you, then to know that the best speech, America's favorite speech, was delivered by an African-American in the black vernacular as an indictment of American racism is something to be very proud of. If you are a patriot, there is nothing in this speech that you need worry about. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Literally and metaphorically delivered in the shadow dream. of Lincoln that pays homage to the founding fathers, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. It's an American speech. couldn't have come from anywhere else. If you are progressive, this speech comes on this day. There have been few days like this for American progressives. Fair enough, only 20% of the crowd was white, which was less than what they were expecting. But nonetheless, this was the first march of its kind in Washington. Now, marches in Washington are two to a penny. But this mass demonstration, they hoped for 100,000. They got 250,000. Never been, uh, had never been done before. And it comes, and this is the way I describe it in, in the book, it is the most eloquent articulation of the last great moral act that America can claim for which there is any consensus. And that is the end of American apartheid. That um, whatever people say now or feel able to say, nobody who wants to be take serious, taken seriously is calling for those signs to go back up. Nobody is calling for a return to formal codified segregation. And however small that may seem when we see the amount of racism that can still spew from the mouths of those who are elected or unelected, that is no small thing. The end of apartheid is a big thing. And it's, um, I, I believe it's the last great moral thing that America can really claim to have done as a country. So there is that. That num a number of people have something to claim, but there's also something else. King, when he delivers that speech, there is an even number of Americans with a favorable and unfavorable view of him. By 66, twice as many Americans have an unfavorable view than a favorable view. By, and then he's dead in 68, assassinated. By 1999, when Americans are polled on who are their favorite characters of the 20, 20th century, King comes second only to Mother Teresa. So something happens between when he is assassinated as a somewhat marginal and polarized figure and 1999. And this is what I think has happened. First of all, why does he become unpopular? Well, when... The speech is delivered. The year after comes the Civil Rights Act. The year after that comes the Voting Rights Act. Legislation begins to kick in. And King understands that the end of segregation is not the same as the beginning of equality. As he says, I have given people, we have won the right to eat in any restaurant of our choice, but we do not 
have the ability to eat everything that's on the menu because we can't afford it. There are 40 million poor people here. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron oil? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? Now, that kind of talk in America in 1967 will get you killed. And sure enough, a year later, he is killed. So he starts talking about capitalism. Year after that, in 67, he starts at the Riverside Church. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And takes a stand against the Vietnam War. Now, how is America then going to remember King? Well, it can't remember him if it's going to raise him to iconic status. If it's going to put him on the mall, then it has to sanitize him for public consumption. It has to make him the kind of person who could come second to Mother Teresa. And you can't do that with a man in America who questions capitalism. Because to remember King in that way would not raise him above the fray, it would enter him into it. You can't remember King as a man who criticized capitalism and still hold him up as an American uh, icon. That doesn't work unless what it takes to be an American icon changes. You can't remember him. America can't remember him. The powers that be is the man who called America the greatest purveyor of military violence in the world today because arguably it still is. And it was notable on the 50th anniversary of the speech. It took place literally on a split screen. And on one screen, there was Obama, Clinton, Carter, carrying King's mantle, cloaking themselves in his legacy. And on the other screen, will we bomb Syria? When will we bomb Syria? Why wouldn't we bomb Syria? You can't remember King as that, have him on the mall, and still claim him to be an American icon when he's speaking about America being the greatest purveyor of military violence. But you can remember him as a man who got rid of American apartheid. Not American racism, because that would involve a whole different set of conversations about why black men in D.C. have a lower life expectancy rate than men on the Gaza Strip. You can't have that conversation, but you can have the conversation about why or how he got rid of uh, American uh, apartheid. Uh, and so that's the way that they choose to remember him. And so I, I, I end with just one paragraph where I talk about the process by which King and through him the speech 
can be sanitized. And they say white America, most of it, came to embrace King in the same way that most white South Africans came to accept Nelson Mandela. Grudgingly and gratefully. Retrospectively, selectively, without grace, but with considerable guile. By the time they realized their dislike of him was spent and futile, he'd created a world in which admiring him was in their own self-interest. Because, in short, they had no choice. When it comes to King and his speech, one of the central arguments in this book is it's not just about what you remember, it's also about what you forget. We've just heard clips today, starting with Newsbeat introducing us to the many layers of King beyond his most famous four words. Intercepted spoke with Tavis Smiley to help us understand the importance of King's Beyond Vietnam speech. Counterspin spoke with Gary Young to explain the collective erasure of King between the marches in Selma and his death three years later. Newsbeat highlighted King's intersectional campaign for an economic bill of rights. Intercepted discussed how people invoke King to push their own agendas by cherry-picking his words to suit their needs. Start Making Sense dove into the details of how contemporary media and even King's allies responded when he turned his attention to poverty and militarism with his Beyond Vietnam speech. And finally, we just heard Gary Young, author of the speech, on Making Contact drawing out the primary lesson from King's I Have a Dream speech that it represents the only part of King that America could stand to remember. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. Uh, no voicemails today, but I want to leave you on a bit of a hopeful note. So, you know, just a year before his assassination in May 1967, Martin Luther King said, quote, I think it is necessary for us to realize that we have moved from the era of civil rights to the era of human rights. In short, we have moved into an era where we are called upon to raise certain basic questions about the whole society, unquote. And later that year, King announced the plan to bring together poor people from across the country for a new march on Washington. This march was to demand better jobs, better homes, better education, better lives than the ones they were living, basically. Uh, This was the beginning of the Poor People's Campaign, and Reverend Dr. Ralph Abernathy explained that the intention of the Poor People's Campaign of 1968 was to, quote, dramatize the plight of America's poor of all races and make very clear that they are sick and tired of waiting for a better life, unquote. The platform of the campaign included petitioning the government to pass an economic bill of rights as a step to lift the load of poverty, a guaranteed annual wage, and a major annual increase in construction of low-cost housing until slums were eliminated. The campaign continued on after Dr. King's assassination, but unfortunately could not withstand the assassination of Robert Kennedy, who was a key proponent. And so this week... As we celebrate Dr. King and appreciate uh, the, the work in his legacy, we wanted to make you aware that after 50 years, the Poor People's Campaign is back. Bishop William J. Barber of the Moral Monday protests in North Carolina and Reverend Dr. Liz Theoharis are leading the charge 
reigniting Dr. King's vision. Here are some of the leaders and the voices of the new Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. There is a fire raging now for the poor of this society. They are living in tragic conditions because of the terrible economic injustices that keep them locked in. We have to deal with our war economy and systemic racism and systemic poverty and ecological devastation. And finally, we have to deal with the moral narrative. We are traveling around this country building this Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. What we want to do now is hear a little bit from the local community who are a part of this campaign. I've spent five years, five or so more years homeless. Living on minimum wage has caused me to have to figure out on a daily basis how to afford basic necessities. While the U.S. sends trillions abroad, my friends, family, and fellow veterans suffer the economic consequences of the war economy. I have two children, and I enjoy raising them while acknowledging that being poor is a struggle of human rights. But when I lost my housing, health care, and income all at the same time, I was terrified, panicked. I want to stand here and reclaim the power and dignity of the mujeres in my life. I can't afford to pay a cab. It was one thing to know that you didn't have water and you couldn't afford your water. It's a whole nother to find out that they shut off your entire community and none of you matter. And in the aftermath of climate change disasters, poor people and people of color are the ones to lose their homes. Who can survive this 725? No parents should have in America she have to bury their pet for a lack of medicated special. Being poor is not a sin. Poverty is a sin. Being homeless is not a sin. Homelessness is a sin. And we are here, and it's time for us to be the remnant that can transform the nation. We are calling for a season of moral resistance. A season of organizing, a season of nonviolent, massive civil disobedience. There will be a movement that will break through the con and cut through the lies and bring people together to save the heart and the soul of this democracy and this world. So if that gives you a little bit of energy and optimism, I suggest you put it to work. You can read the campaign's fundamental principles and get involved by going to poorpeoplescampaign.org. That's going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, 
All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.